guys team, happy July, happy Monday, and most importantly, happy season three. You're, of course, listening to Equally Lost, the weekly podcast on design, business, and existential crises with me, Elsa. As you can probably tell from this intro, Sophia isn't here this week, but I assure you that is not the big change or amendment to our content that we were talking about last season. She will be back next week. So very shortly, but this week I have the absolute pleasure of yapping at you by myself for however long we usually go in these episodes. I think it'll be grand. Um, I'm so glad you're joining me. I have a whole list of things that I want to go through. Two weeks is a long time for me to collect things that I need to get off my chest because we all know that the number one reason for this podcast's existence is for me and Sophia to vent at each other for content so that we don't have to go and terrorise our other friends. So honestly, I think this will be fun and we'll have a good time. Um, let me know what you're drinking as you're listening to us at Equally Lost Podcast on Instagram, because I, for one, am drinking an elderflower breezer. Now, this is quite off-brand and not a very podcasty thing to do. I know that when you're recording, you're supposed to be drinking like a nice Pinot or like any type of wine, honestly. At least that's what Katie Bellotti drinks. I used to listen to her a lot when she started Thick and Thin and she would always talk about wine. And uh, breezes to me are a very, like, I have just turned 18, I'm at the stool and I don't know what I'm doing drink. But in my defence, I'm drinking this because... This is what I had left in my bag from Helsinki Pride this Saturday. Um, Pride is a funny thing. So I've gone every year since I was probably 16, I think. Um, and I've truly never had a bad experience. Like every single time I go to Pride, I'm talking about Helsinki Pride, which is like an entire week. And then like in like any other big city, you have the one Saturday at the end of Pride Month. That's like the big thing and the big happening. And that's in Helsinki usually like, a parade and then you end up at this big park at like the southern tip of Helsinki and that's where everyone just kind of like drinks and hangs out um and what always happens of course when I've been of legal drinking age is I'll start off with like a nice bottle of wine and then eventually like you know you either get tired of it or it runs out and there is a very specific K markets that any Finn listening to this right now should know uh, that everyone kind of like congregates at and gets uh, refreshments and we went so late this year that the only thing that they basically had left was breezes uh, and so we went with it because you know it, the night was young it was like 8 p.m and you had to get something because you always are there for like the entire day this year obviously was a bit different so last year they didn't have anything these are big events last year was very like everyone was understandably very cautious of covid and so um nothing really happened but this year you know people are getting vaccinated the covid situation in finland has been looking a lot better um and um you know my friends and i who i have gone with since i was 17 or something we're thinking okay well there's nothing official going on but we'll still go like we'll just like go to the park as usual and we'll just like have a little thing and just hang out um 
One really nice thing about this event every year is that I don't have that many friends in Helsinki, but this is kind of like the one time a year that I get to not only meet friends that I wouldn't necessarily, you know, hang out with just the two of us, and I also get to like meet their friends and it's a nice kind of mingling kind of thing. And I don't think we legitimately even expected anyone to be there. But so, like, first of all, I get to the tram and there's already like 15 people with like, who are looking exactly like they would be going to a Pride event. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, and then we get to the park and we're suddenly part of this like mass migration from that specific A market to, you know, the various spots in the park that you can sit at. And so it turns out that like just like every other gay person in Helsinki had had the exact same thinking uh, that me and my friends did. So we weren't really original. This is a very, very long way of saying that um, I'm drinking a breezer because that's what... I was drinking Helsinki Pride, and that is my excuse. However, uh, other really um, unexpected things that have happened this week. This is a very random story, but I need to tell someone. So um, I had to witness this, so so do you. Uh, so I was looking for clothes for Pride, right? So the other day, so last week, um, I went. I, I had some clothes in the attic that I wanted. One of the weird things about not quite living at home, but living abroad, but not having your own apartment. Like, obviously, I don't have my own place. I live in a dorm um, at college. Is that your things are never really in one place ever. Like, some of my clothes right now in Vermont, like, most of it is kind of winter stuff. Then some of my stuff is in, you know, my closet in my room where I'm right now. And then some of it is, like, in the attic. Some of it is, like, literally still in a suitcase because I don't wear it. You know, there's not really, like, any centralised place. I hope that will change once I get, you know, a job and a my own apartment next year, um, knocking on wood. So I had to go up to the attic and what's quite common in these, like, older buildings, and um, I think this is, like, a very scandy thing, but the thing that's in the attic is, like, a common like storage space so when you get the apartment along with it you get like what's called a hack and it's literally just like what's a hacky in english i need to okay this sounds bad this sounds very bdsm but it's like a little like cage that's sectioned off and that has like the number of your apartment and that's where you can keep like your extra stuff so I had my clothes in there and I start kind of like taking out the boxes and I get my clothes and I start pushing back the boxes and like the last thing that is there on the ground that I hadn't noticed was a small open box and when I go to pick it up there is a dead bird or like so I thought so <laughs> I don't actually know for a fact if it was dead or not but it was looking quite not alive and there was this like just wave of terror that swept over me and I like because I don't witness dead things that much thank god and I was like I shit you not for about 10 minutes I went through this inner dialogue of oh my god what am I gonna do like I in order for me to get out of here I need to put this box back in because I can't just throw it away because it's my mum's. 
Um, but I also do not want to touch this thing. Like there was just something so eerie about this bird being in the box that I just couldn't bear touching it. And then there was, I even went so far as to thinking, oh my God, I need a man to do this for me. That's how bad it got. <laughs> but so I was standing there, like going in for the box, like putting on my big girl pants, trying to get the box and like backing away because it was so gross and then going through it again. And then eventually I like, oh my God, I'm like actually having chills right now as I'm talking about this. I'm such a prissy in these kinds of things. But so I like went for the box and like in one swift move and tried to put it back into like the cage, like the storage cage. And I swear, like I, I, I swear I just felt something moving in the box. Like it was open. I could, I was not going to look at it. I just like locked it off and ran downstairs with my clothes pretty much. And like, I know there's other stuff in that storage space that I really want. Like, you know, my good clothes are in there, but I'm so scared of that dead bird. <laughs> I don't want to go back. And so, yeah, that was, um, that was not so fun. Um, really had to get that off my chest, thank you. But, you know, speaking of needing men and speaking of being a little prissy, um, okay, that's that's a bit unfair. But I've been looking, <laughs> I've been watching Love Island, um, and I want to say right off the bat that, as I think many people, I don't watch Love Island as like a Fiat five hundred live laugh love type of deal. I watch it and in a gendered interactions and the feminine performance in contemporary England kind of way like sociological you know social commentary of the moment kind of way obviously um the show is so bad that it is like so entertaining like (laughs) there is something so entertaining about watching people who I truly like cannot relate to um this season, I think, like, there's been a lot of talk, um, I'm talking about the UK version, by the way, where it's, like, it presents its own challenge that one of the guys, his name is Brad, I think, he's from, like, way up north, and I literally have to put on subtitles to, like, understand what he says, um, because it's, it's, it's not even just the accent, like, I think if it was just the, his accent, I could deal with it, but he also just, like, uses words, like, crack, I think, like, C-R- AIC um that I just like are not really in my vernacular let's say um and that I just don't understand so I've been doing some googling I've been learning about British slang as I've been watching this has been very educational but there's been there's been talk on Twitter about how um this is like the worst season that people have seen which to me doesn't say much because I haven't actually like my friend and I we watched some episodes like two years ago and I was like very invested in the episodes that we did watch but this is the first one that I've like watched from beginning to wherever we are right now and I plan on watching it till the end because like it's, it's so fun but I can kind of see what they mean because obviously like this show is framed as finding the one and finding love but when you're putting people on reality television there's a lot of self-selection obviously for people who um, um maybe quite inclined to drama so it's not as straightforward as like oh like find someone that you like and just like stick with them um because like 
for example, the thing that people are talking about on Twitter is that there's this guy, Jake, who's been coupled up with Liberty, who is like, she's, the girl is literally my age. And I, I kind of, I'm not going to say that I have like so much respect for her for going on the show, but she does much, like anyone who goes on that show must have like nerves of steel and like, you know, Liberty, if she's my age, I don't think you'll like that experienced in relationships when you're our age like when you're like in your early 20s so like going there is kind of like really throwing yourself in the deep end but she's a sweetheart right and like they've been coupled up since like the first week and you know things were like seeming to go fine but you can tell that this jake is obviously a bit of a player because that's how you go on a dating reality television show is because you're probably a bit of a player in my humble opinion. Um, and so, like, these people have literally been coupled up since the first uh, first day. They've been, like, very, like, close. And they, like, were even, like, sent out of the hideaway where you kind of, like, get to, I guess, like, spend time by yourselves um, for a bit. And then they have this, like, episode where they're having brunch, like, all the couples. And this guy, Jake, just goes, like, uh, like to her face. is like, oh, well, if someone came in here and they're my type, like, if she's a blonde, I'd want to get to know her. And this girl, Liberty, my God, sweetheart, is there just like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, sure, like, I'd do the same thing. But that's kind of the, the go- type of guy that they've sent in there. And, like, my personal favourite, because this strikes at a chord that we all know is very close to my heart, is there was this there is this couple as of right now um of Sharon and Aaron Sharon is like civil servant she works in like you know like Brexit policy I suppose and Aaron I don't remember she he's like a promoter probably um and at at first seemed like two very you know like sharp compatible people you know like one of my favorites um at the beginning I can't believe I have so many opinions about Love Island but this is like this is in a sociological sense this is very interesting and you know they seemed very compatible at first and then the same brunch that Jake and Liberty had their moment at they (laughs) like they start talking about I think like family and Aaron, the guy, is like, oh, I want, like, quite a few kids, like, four or five, and Sharon's immediately like, oh my god, because she's, like, kind of been profiled as, like, very career-driven woman, she's talking about how she wants, like, an Aston Martin, and, like, Aaron's not into that, and then Sharon makes a brilliant point, my girl Sharon is like, oh, I don't want that many kids because I don't want to be, like, doing all the house labour by myself. And I'm like, oh my god, like, I can't believe we're on Love Island and we're talking about, like, one of the most, like, societally significant shifts for women. Like, what, like, a really significant issue that's, like, present in, like, fucking Biden's, like, infrastructure plan and stuff. Uh, And I was so very, um, I was very impressed by that. She's very sharp. We like her. And later that, like, obviously the brunch was kind of where everything started going, started falling apart. And later in the episode, Aaron's talking to, like, the other guys. And they, I shit you not, they're talking about how, like, I don't think Sharon is the type of woman that could just handle the man being, like, the breadwinner and her just being a housewife. That's verbatim. They use those exact words. And my jaw hit the flu like these are 20 something year old people 
And yet it just seems that like the girls on Love Island are so far ahead, if that makes sense. Like there is something just like so aggressive about how the guys were talking about these girls that they're spending time with. And another thing was that um, there was like an incident not really relevant what it was, but some of the girls got quite upset at something that one of these guys had said and uh, instead of, like, hearing them out and, like, recognising that they had, like, their feelings were valid even in some sense, these guys started talking amongst each other about how, like, these girls are fiery, I don't deal with fiery girls, they're feisty, um... And that's an issue. And that's even something that they said to like the two new girls that came in that the problem among the girls is that they're feisty and they're fiery and that's not nice. And it's just like, let's appreciate how Love Island has managed to just like capture, like, I mean, first of all, like the entire show revolves around like gaslighting and misogyny basically, right? But Love Island has managed to capture how even in, like, our generation, men to some extent still want women to be, like, hairless and passive and, like, housewives and they want to do just, like, the men want to do whatever and the women are just, like, obviously not having, I think, like, Love Island people get a lot of shit for being dumb. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, like, if you listen to the conversations that the girls have with them, with each other, they're, like, very aware of things and they're very, like, self-reflective. And the girls are just, like, not having any of that, like, passive housewife talk. Um, and so that's been, you know, <laughs> if we're gonna, if we're gonna frame Love Island as, like, a learning experience, I think that's been super interesting. But, yeah, so that's my two cents. I'm gonna continue following that. Another show that I've gone in, back into was uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Season 12 is what my sister forced me to watch, and it's just been fantastic. I love Gigi Good. I relate to her on so many levels. I think we'd be great friends if she wants to call me, please. Another thing, obviously, that I'm t thinking about is that senior year is starting in two months. We've talked about my feelings about college kind of coming to a close or at least being like in its final stretch before in this podcast. I'm not going to go into that again because we've been over it. But <laughs> so um, one thing that my friends and I are sort of preparing for is we have room draw. Basically, the way that it works is that once you once you're an upperclassman, so a junior or a senior. Um, so in your third or fourth year, for anyone who's not familiar with how college in the States works, um, you we, we kind of have a choice between you can have like a regular dorm room like a single where you have a room and then you have like communal bathrooms and like imagine just like the kind of very normal dorm building that many I think know but um we also have the option that I think like a lot of people go for of having these like quasi apartments called suites usually they have like you know four bedrooms a bathroom and like a kitchenette and like a living area they're not like full apartments because the kitchens are like not they like they're very rarely like actual kitchens I digress so for this room jewel you get like a roommate group and then you get a time slot and then you in your assigned time slot choose from you know whatever spaces are left um this is not like a difficult concept I'm making it sound so much more complicated than it actually is but um <laughs> thing is there is a lot of just like spaces to choose from and I'm gonna room with three other girls uh, which is going to be a change because in my house last year it was I think five 
guys myself and another girl which was an experience by itself um i had a lot of fun in that house but i'm also very very glad to be living with girls again um just because i think i don't have to yell at people for leaving up the toilet seat anymore but anyway the point that i was trying to get to was that there's a lot of spaces to choose from so we've been just trying to kind of find an order to things and like find out a strategy and the way that I know that I have found the exact right sweet ways for me is that instead of just kind of like going ham and seeing how it goes, my sweet mate made this entire Excel sheet that's called like operations plan. And for the past couple of days, we've been like setting up like a point system where like you assign a hundred points per building as you choose. And then like from the points that each suite gets across the four of us that kind of like establishes its ranking i was initially thinking of like building something like actually like coding something where it i would like assign points to props but with my job i didn't really have the time to do that also i would have had to like teach myself new things and i really didn't have the time to do that um but that would have been really fun and so yeah it's completely neurotic and I love it and I'm so excited to see what comes out of it. Also, just like the domesticity of being able to go onto like Target and Ikea and like just put all the things in the shopping cart that we need for our suite um, is just really wonderful and I'm really looking forward to that space for senior year. But alas, that was a lot of yapping already. There was a lot of catching up. Let's get on with our Don't Even Get Me Started. For our Don't Even Get Me Started this week, it's a real banger because we're bringing together climate change, the Biden administration, and infrastructure bills, apparently. But so, um, basically, the context of this is that I have never in my life had as much climate anxiety as I have had this summer and the reason for that is obviously that it's just been so damn hot um unless you've been living under a rock Canada is on fire the Mexican Gulf is on fire because an oil pipe burst apparently in my childhood this is not what I remember it being like obviously so we lived abroad but we'd always come to Finland for the summer and I just kind of remember it being more of a joke that Finnish summers were quite mild you might wear things in Finland that you would like usually wear um in the spring elsewhere and then there'd kind of be a couple of weekends maybe where temperatures got over 25 degrees and I think like the 25 degree mark is very telling in Finland because there's a separate word for temperatures that go above it called hele um, and I think like when it just the reason I'm saying that is because like when you have a um, like that specific of a mark for high temperatures, it kind of insinuates that it's maybe like not that common. And that's certainly been the case in Finland. Not anymore. Like summers are so hot nowadays and winters are just kind of got they've gotten more mild Um snowless um again in my childhood when we'd come to Finland to spend Christmas with my grandparents may they rest in peace um it it'd be this like winter wonderland I think when you think of Finland you think of kind of like white winters those like ice igloo hotels that they have up in Lapland you know Santa Claus and skiing and all of that 
maybe not skiing, maybe then you think of the Alps. Anyway, <laughs> but that's just like, that's again not the case anymore. I think like our last couple winters have been relatively snowless until like February or something where suddenly there's like a meter of snow. Um, and so uh, the reason I'm going on that rant is that in my own very short life, I'm not that old, I'm turning 22 this year, I have seen just how much the climate has already changed. And another example that I can immediately think of when it comes to just like warmer winters is that one of my really close childhood friends is from a city called Turku along the coast and there's a beautiful river that goes through the through the city and uh, in when we were really little kids it used to be so thick with ice that people could actually go and like skate on it and she has pictures of herself with her mum when she's been skating on the ice and that's just not possible anymore it's just not safe anymore um, and all around Helsinki there's warnings throughout the winter that um, you shouldn't go on the ice because it's just like so thin most of the time and so I'm saying that as someone who is not even like I'm not Greta Thunberg I'm not that's Greta Thunberg by the way for those who don't, don't speak Swedish um I'm not like a hardcore environmentalist I think like for most people when you're a political person or interested in politics you maybe have like a couple sort of like main issues for you that you maybe like think and write about the most and truthfully the environment has never been that thing for me climate policy has never been that thing for me what I do know now however and the thing that's really standing out to me is that like I find it absolutely horrifying the way that politicians are not taking proactive action on this um you know the Biden administration is certainly trying but um whether or not it will get through the senate is a big question mark and my guess is probably not especially not after the midterms and uh, like even in Finland we're having serious conversations in the parliament for some reason about like cutting down more of our forests and um prioritizing energy sources that are in no way sustainable and so I am really feeling debilitating anxiety over that. And so the, the that's kind of like the headspace that we've been in. And so then I came across these tweets from the Biden administration that, um, you know, of course the Biden administration is trying to push through its infrastructure bill that right now is kind of in a deadlock because it's not going anywhere. Um, because first conservatives really didn't like it because it had a too broad of a definition for infrastructure. Apparently that kind of goes into what I'm going to talk about in the last segment of this episode, namely domestic work. And now because there's been kind of a bipartisan version of the bill that they've been trying to construct, progressives now have an issue with it because it's watered down, um, understandably. And there's a lot of progressive pundits that are saying that Democrats should under no circumstances pass a quote-unquote bipartisan version of this bill because it does not accomplish the things that it was supposed to accomplish. But, you know, so trying to push these things through and what that obviously means is that they have had political strategists um, probably test out some phrases, test out some rhetoric that would hopefully um, capture some of their voters and, like, spark interest in this. And the rhetoric that they have chosen is just so quintessentially American um, and um, frankly a bit disgusting that I was very upset by it. The first of these tweets was about an infrastructure bill um, and it read basically this bill will quote position the United States to win the 21st century 
And now that's not like an overtly provocative statement given how close it is to just the overall language of American exceptionalism, the overall language of America first, but there is something really tone deaf and really just off-putting to me about the idea that a single nation state, particularly the United States, could somehow unilaterally win when we are in a global climate emergency, first of all, and also in a global pandemic. Like, the idea that the United States could somehow unilaterally win the 21st century when there is a virus spreading around, um, where there is no saying that, for example, in some of the developing countries that have not gotten as many vaccines to no fault of their own, that there would be new variants forming that are vaccine resistant. There's no saying that, for example, all of the people in the United States that have not gone vaccinated um, wouldn't be petri dishes for a vaccine resistant variant that's gonna spread all across the world and wreck all kinds of havoc um, and just kind of like push us back 15 steps from where we are right now. Like, there is no unilateral winning in a climate emergency, there is no unilateral winning in a global pandemic. I think, in fact, that's going against the kind of global cooperation that we really need during this time, especially in climate matters, and so really that rhetoric is completely unfounded. Case closed. And then the second one, again relating to the pandemic, is a tweet that said that vaccinations will help America, quote, declare its independence from the virus. Obviously, that's playing on July 4th, that's playing on just American cultural logics that love to underline personal freedom and independence. And again, just as I said, there is no saying that there will not be a variant forming somewhere with people who aren't vaccinated that will just counteract all the efforts that we have so far made toward ending the pandemic um and just i just oh my god like i and someone might be thinking like okay also this is just you being cranky those tweets are just like regular u.s rhetoric it's not that upsetting and the thing is you'd be writing saying that like uh, obviously i'm cranky about a lot of things but This one in particular because Biden has been so quick to frame himself as like the polar opposite to the Trump administration, the right doer. I think people have been calling him um, the most progressive president since Lyndon B. Johnson or something like that. And I think this is the type of thing that just shows that that is completely unfounded. The language that this administration is using about big global issues and the American position in those is in no way above that of his predecessor. I mean, obviously Trump would have done this in a much less diplomatic way, in a much more racist, xenophobic manner. But the sentiment is ultimately still the same as the same kind of broken tape America first rhetoric that um, has been employed by Biden, that has been employed by Trump and basically every president before that in the same way that American exceptionalism is kind of like unspoken rule that every president has to adhere to. I'm just, I'm, I'm so tired. Like as someone who, as someone who really values global corporation who like wants to make a career out of that this is really really annoying to me but anyway with that now out of the way and off my chest let's move on to the last part of this episode 
Right, so as I already said, I want to take the last five to ten minutes of this episode that we have to get together today uh, to not really make a case per se for an issue that I really care about, but just, you know, kind of give you some of the background so that hopefully you can go and do some research yourself because domestic labour really is an important issue as evidenced by the fact that it's finally acknowledged in legislation in Biden's original infrastructure plan. Now, whether that will actually make it into the final version is a completely different question, which we will not concern ourselves with today, at least. So basically, I guess like the the thing that's behind this impulse for me to always be talking about this is not just that um, I am a political scientist in training or that I'm interested in labour flows or anything, but that sometimes I think you have issues where you see the status quo of things and you just kind of can't believe that that's the way it is and certainly the professional lack of recognition that domestic workers all around the world get is one of those things for me and that for me has started I think quite early in my life but I think really in Hong Kong just because Hong Kong people are just Um, there are so many migrant domestic workers in Hong Kong if you have any sort of money you probably have a helper Um, and the rights of migrant domestic workers in Hong Kong are also super questionable for example if you are a migrant domestic worker specifically if that's like your occupation that's how you've come to Hong Kong even if you've lived in the city for 20 years you can't apply for citizenship or any of those rights you're completely just kind of cut out of them, insulated, unlike any other sector. So for example, if I moved there to be like a consultant or something and I lived in Hong Kong for seven years, um, I think that's the amount of time that is, I might be wrong, um, I could apply to become a permanent resident and that would be it. Um, And that just sadly is not the case because um, domestic workers are kind of segregated legally. And that's not just the case in Hong Kong, Um, that is a kind of pattern that we just see all around the world. And I think that says a lot about how, first of all, domestic work and any type of care work um, is kind of still seen as something that women do just kind of naturally or people generally do as a calling. Um, They do that readily and therefore shouldn't be compensated or that domestic work because it has to get done anyway just somehow isn't real labour and that of course is completely unfounded. So first of all the most intuitive way to present why this issue is important is because in the words of Ai Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance which is the group that or the organisation has to say that works on this issue or these issues in the States, she says that domestic work makes all other work possible. And that's really how it is. I mean, if you think about the amount of time that it takes to feed and clothe children, raise children, make food, um, clean the house, um, do laundry, like those are extremely time-consuming tasks. And if it really was kind of like every man out for himself, every household out for themselves without any sort of outside help, we might well still be in a place in the world where women can't work outside of the home, they have to work inside the home because otherwise that work doesn't get done. And so um, a really major way how, of how really major reason for why women have been able to work outside the home 
as much as we do now is because we have outside infrastructure that supports that. So you can drop off your kids at a daycare, for example. A lot of people employ house cleaners. A lot of people, um, for example, during the pandemic have had their groceries delivered. And now that's not entirely, that's not exactly domestic work. Um, and it doesn't really fall under the issue that we're talking about right here. But the point is to say that we all rely on this kind of care infrastructure. We all rely on these care services to one extent or the other to do things that we want to do. And domestic workers are professionals who are providing those services and are no less professionals than anyone else. Another kind of impulse, and this is maybe me being more of a political economist, political scientist, is that domestic workers, as invisible as they are in the home, are actually a really significant labour flow all across the world. And for example, in countries like the Philippines, which is a major sending country for reasons that we will discuss in just a minute, um, those remittances that domestic workers abroad sent back to their families in the Philippines actually constitute 10% of their GDP, according to the World Bank. That's a massive number. That is a huge chunk of the Philippine GDP that's coming from workers abroad because the same number just for reference for OECD countries I think is around it's it's less than a percentage point I think and so we're we're, we're talking about just enormous cash flows across borders and that's of course only accounting for those that can be tracked that doesn't actually account for people carrying cash on hand. Basically what we've established by now is that domestic work is essential work. Without domestic work the world as we know it just doesn't function. There's work that always has to get done and domestic workers abroad constitute a massive economic actor in many countries, especially in Southeast Asia, for example. Now, just a few more words about the Southeast Asia example. So I've done quite a bit of work on this. There are many, many different corridors. So for example, um, there's a lot of domestic workers in South Africa, for example. I won't talk about them specifically just because I don't know that much about them in detail. All of the kind of papers that I've written on this topic have more or less been about the Philippines and Indonesia and Hong Kong just because my interest in this topic started there so it kind of made sense for me to stay there um, just kind of thematically. Something that I would absolutely uh, recommend you look into if you're interested in the sort of human rights aspect of this I alluded to in the beginning when I was talking about migration into Hong Kong for domestic workers is the kafala system in the Arab Gulf because that's what we're talking about not just lack of labour protections in the kind of very western sense but we're actually talking about something that should be characterised as slavery, modern slavery, um, really kind of restricting a person's individual legal rights tying them to an employer and so that's kind of like an entire case by itself but in terms of the Philippines and Indonesia I think it's really important to kind of recognize that these aren't just individual women that randomly decided that they're going to go abroad and work as nannies or something these are first of all institutionalized flows and there are ministerial level political priority for governments. Um, so for example, what happened in the Philippines and Indonesia is that neoliberal globalization happened. And what that did is that a lot, a lot of people were rendered underemployed, unemployed, rurally displaced. All of this, by the way, is from a fantastic book from Robin Rodriguez. It's very scholarly, it's definitely a monograph, it's usually like not exactly um, a thriller, but if you read the conclusion of it, I think it's 
um, available at most universities and as ebooks is really fantastic and it will give you a really good primer in this issue. But so people are underemployed, unemployed, rurally displaced, and now that is not exactly a situation where you're happy, right? So suddenly the Philippine government had this massive amount of people who they kind of, that they know they're really unhappy, they're organizing against the government, they're joining leftist organizations, they're organizing and the Philippine government is like, oh my God, we have to somehow get these people work so that they won't basically overthrow us more or less. And so the solution that the Philippine government, for example, came up with, and this is quite similar to Indonesia, is that they saw an oversupply of these unemployed people who needed work. And so they started exporting those people as labour abroad, as migrant workers, to do construction, to do domestic work. That's the case, for example, with Hong Kong, is that Hong Kong people work in offices, very busy, the work culture is very that. Um, and so the Philippine government started exporting domestic workers, for example, to go into Hong Kong to fill that need. And so, again, just to reiterate, this is not just individual people moving abroad and being au pairs. This is an actual political infrastructure that's built around exporting labour abroad. And now this is kind of like my personal opinion about this, but when you're making a political priority to export labour, you're not exactly concerned with like, the individual rights of the person. And so I think what's happened in the process, and this is again kind of tying back to what I said about domestic labour being seen as kind of like, first of all being taken for granted and also being quite quite invisible, is that you're really depersonalising the worker and you're really kind of stripping them of that personal professional career recognition and that obviously is one thing among the many things that organizations like the national domestic workers alliance are working for so the thing i want to say is that if you have the means please do donate to organizations like the national domestic workers alliance who are driving the movement for these absolutely essential policies that will help domestic workers and help them get the recognition that they deserve so guys, it's been a minute. I've been babbling to myself for quite a bit now and thankfully Sophia will be returning next week so that we can bounce off of each other like we usually do. If you like this episode, please do rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. We will see you next week. Mwah. <laughs>